Okay, Pasa Mufasa, what's up everybody? Bom dia, buenos dias, salam aleikum and shalom. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. We've got James Davis of Bay Staters in the house today. We've taught thousands of people how to grow mushrooms at this point. And a lot of this comes down to the fact that psilocybin spores are not illegal. We have taught genuine classes, and I mean this, Dennis, on microscopy. Uh, Some of the artists in our network actually regularly look at organisms under a microscope for art projects. And I think microscopy might be one of those serendipitous areas where we discover the next big thing, which is why it's so exciting to see people take their healing into their own hands so we can learn. That's that's science. That's citizen science at work. James knows a thing or two about drug policy and psychedelic policy reform. We're going to get into the nuts and bolts of what that means, how Bay Staters goes about it, and why they've been successful in their measure to decriminalize plant medicines across the Northeast United States and beyond. This episode is brought to you by MicroBoost. That's M-Y-C-R-O-B-O-O-S-T. Mushroom supplements. Look, I've got some turkey tail, chaga, reishi, fruiting body extract, soft gel capsules, right there. This episode is also brought to you by Healing Herbals. And that's an online shop that's selling high quality kana extracts in addition to all sorts of other legal entheogenic goodies. I think you should tap in with the Healing Herbals store at healingherbals.store or check them out on Instagram at Healing Herbals. As always, thank you very much for listening and please, please go ahead and rate and review Mycopreneur Podcast wherever you're listening. All right, without further ado, let's get the show on the road. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, James Davis of Bay Staters is back on the Mycopreneur Podcast. What's up? How are things in Massachusetts today, James? Massachusetts is popping. We're educating and getting more cities by the hour. So excited to chat with you, Dennis. You were on the podcast a little over a year ago. I know you've been instrumental in decriminalizing mushrooms and other natural medicines and substances in a few other cities since then. So maybe we just start with what has changed in the last year since you've been on Mycopreneur? Absolutely. So our events are off the chain wax to appropriate a term. I don't use that often. We are seeing hundreds of people come out to our forages where they learn how to appreciate more than just the magic kind of mushrooms, more people coming to our potlucks to learn about the community work. And we're connecting with people one-on-one through our facilitator network so that they can have an experience that's most meaningful for them. So a few highlights is that we have four communities on the way, including Provincetown, which is really a beacon of hope for queer people across the globe and will continue to be a beacon of hope if we're able to transform the off-season tourism industry into one that promotes healing and psilocybin as a way for people to unwind and heal from their trauma, particularly from homophobia. And so, you know, more people educated than ever, more people coming to our events and ultimately more people having experiences that they're going to take home to their Christmas dinner table and, you know, speak truth about these plant medicines that have helped so many. So you've decriminalized and base staters, I say, as an extension of you and vice versa in over 12 cities, I believe. How many cities total are you at right now? And the next part B of that question is, is there a common approach that you're taking now that you have X amount of cities successfully decriminalized under your belt when you're going to talk to policymakers in other cities, is there a unified point of access that you're starting with? Absolutely. So 
In the first four cities in America, we decriminalized possession of all controlled substances, specifically highlighting how the entire war on drugs has just been atrocious for public health. And in Massachusetts in particular, we lose one of our loved ones and neighbors here to an opioid overdose every four hours. And so that point alone and the reality that psilocybin can help people get to the core traumas that drive them toward addiction to other substances has helped us decriminalize six communities across Massachusetts, most recently Portland, Maine, with the help of Decriminalize Maine, and Berkeley, California, which we're really proud about because, you know, Terrence McKenna himself, who partially inspired my first psilocybin experience, helped educate the world uh, in his own kooky kind of way. And it really demonstrates the power of a movement to move coast to coast with a message that's not just pro-plant medicine, not just anti-decriminalization, we're for something, we're for natural medicine, and then also bringing in allies and advocates from across the drug policy space, not just psychedelic people. And that's what we primarily aim to do is bring uh, muggles or normies into the conversation rather than focus on the psychedelic bubble that you satirize so well on your Instagram and TikTok. So another update I would share is we filed state legislation that would legalize and set a gold standard for allowing coaches to register with this Commonwealth of Massachusetts, pay a very simple licensing fee, you know, pay unto the government what they want to make plant medicines accessible and ultimately prevent a system like Oregon's where it's almost $3,000 per gram for psilocybin. Instead, you could have therapists, coaches, and mental health professionals already here in the Commonwealth simply getting educated and then able to offer those trip-sitting services. And one of our sponsors, uh, Senator Jalen, She's on the older side. She's been in the legislature about 30 years. Uh, we got her to file the bill because we were on her, her uh, doorstep in the middle of January with five of her neighbors saying that plant medicine changed their lives. And she said that our hearing before the Massachusetts state legislature, the first in history on psychedelics, had record attendance that she had never seen for any other issue. It was wall-to-wall -wall staffers and lawmakers over 60, and many of those staffers actually came to us for facilitation services afterwards. And so to say that we're on the verge of a revolution in how we legalize plant medicines to make ourselves better neighbors, uh, better friends, better lovers across Massachusetts is an understatement because we've gotten normal people involved in the democratic process here. Yeah, you do that so well. And I know that you have a background working with political advocacy, so that extends nicely to your current work. Let's talk a little bit about the war on drugs. You just touched on it. And for a lot of people, there's this idea of psychedelic exceptionalism, right? Where psychedelics get all the attention. Well, I'm curious about how do, what is the role of psychedelic policy change and advocacy in the broader goal of ending the war on drugs? Absolutely. So for us, Ending the entire war on drugs is part of our DNA. Uh, for me personally, I grew up in a trailer park where 
my home was almost burned down by a methamphetamine lab that had exploded uh, next door. And so that was my first experience with the war on drugs. But then I went off to a big fancy school for college, never even thought I'd go to college, ended up at a pretty fancy one where kids were using Adderall, which is just a few molecules different from the methamphetamine that nearly burned down my neighborhood. And it really demonstrates that drugs are already legal in the United States. They're just legal for certain people and they're legal for certain corporations to sell them to us. And we see this in the fact that, you know, tryptamines are already included in many migraine medications that are out there. Uh, things like Trank uh, that are unfortunately adding on to the opioid crisis and its deadly toll. Trank is really similar to ketamine, which is legal if you're able to pay almost $25,000 a year for regular infusions in Massachusetts. And so for us, it really demonstrates the inequality at the core of the war on drugs. Another kind of nonprofit talking point about the war on drugs is that it's been a failure. The war on drugs has been a remarkable success because its goal was to divide and criminalize political opponents and to awesome uh, police budgets. Uh, and what we see in a place like Boston is if someone uses cocaine in their nice uh, brownstone apartment on Beacon Hill, a block away from the Capitol, they're never going to get in trouble. No one's ever going to search their Porsche because they have political capital. But if you drive around in a red line neighborhood like Roxbury or Dorchester, you can get pulled over and have your ass on the curb, your entire car searched when you don't even have drugs on you. So what this highlights for us is, you know, psychedelics are for me and for thee. And we should legalize them in the most affordable way possible while also building an infrastructure of education so they're safe and beneficial for as many as possible. Totally agree. You're a very well-spoken fellow. It's one of the reasons I love to host you on the podcast. And unfortunately, not everybody wants to platform your point of view, it seems. And I know it's something that you've spoken about. You have great ideas. You've been successful with Bay Staters demonstrably successful at having impacted policy change and affected policy change, 4,000 volunteers, et cetera, et cetera. But yet it feels like there's sort of a void around Bay Staters when it comes to a lot of the narratives, a lot of the stories that get covered within the psychedelic space. Why do you suppose that is? Well, I'd start with a, a more meta critique that might feel kind of personal for you having your Instagram frozen uh, recently and taken down. So for us, the more that we're locked out of that space, that elite space of how we talk about substances, the more we double down on community. Uh, to quote Tip O'Neill, who is the Speaker of the House from Massachusetts, uh, both for the state and federally under the Reagan administration, all politics is local. And so the fact that we've been censored by social media like you, the fact that we're not invited to fancy conferences, it really doesn't bother us because it's meant that we've prioritized our time building relationships here and making change here. And that mycelium isn't, you know, based on likes, you know, lots of people can like a post or share a post, but if they're not demanding action from their lawmakers, if they're not, you know, educating their friends and family, it doesn't really have much of an impact. It's slacktivism. And so in a sense, we're grateful uh, to not be 
included. And in a sense, we're, we're grateful that we've had to build from peer to peer because that's what actually changes people's minds and achieves and achieves real change at the end of the day. Yeah, super well stated, super well put. I agree. And it's a nice refresher because it's really easy to get sucked into global thinking and what's happening all over the place. And, you know, the Internet and social media have flattened the earth in some ways. But, yeah, the, the pedal still meets the metal at your uh, local politician's office, I suppose. And most people don't understand that, uh, myself included, like how to actually impact and affect policy change. Because unless you come from that background or you've devoted a considerable amount of time to understanding it, the United States political system can feel quite convoluted and quite nonsensical. And for example, in California, where I'm from, we've had a few bills shot dead. I don't think anybody was particularly excited about a lot of the bills, but there's two or three new ones this year. And I would just be curious if you could explain, like I'm five, if I wanted to introduce legislation, what is the most effective route to doing it, to getting it on the ballot? Yeah. So I'll outline a few really critical principles that are useful for just about any way in which someone wants to change the world. The first is people do big things for big causes. You mentioned that not many people were excited about the psychedelics bills in California that you know got whittled down by New Approach Pack and other interest groups within the California legislature. There's a reason why Newsom did not have the pressure necessary to pass that. And it's because a lot of the grassroots people who would have actually talked about this and taken action were not excited about it. And so that's why in our advocacy approach, we always swing for the fences, because when you swing for the fences, when you're honest, when you're authentic, you end up getting maybe not 100% of what you wanted, but you shift the Overton window, the window of what's allowed to be discussed further in the direction where it needs to go, which for us culminated in... Uh, a journalist uh, against our will using my hand having uh, psilocybin mushrooms in it in the Boston Globe recently. Uh, we read this article. It was it was almost pure propaganda on behalf of the pack that's trying to co-opt our work here. And yet a lot of readers who saw that, they saw the headline that psilocybin might soon be legal. They saw me and Molly, my friend Molly, not like the drug, uh, going on a microdosed hike in the woods. And they probably thought, wow, this could help me too. And that's the moral message that they took away. So come up with a good set of values that really put people first. Understand that there's going to be a lot of people you interact with who you won't like and won't be your cup of tea. And that's okay. They can start their own group. They can start their own organizing. It's healthier that way. And you just keep pushing and advocating for what you believe in. A second principle I would outline is think about policies that are more universal, that kind of bring more people into the fold than just a small group that like psychedelics. Uh, I led a campaign in Taiwan uh, with one of my good, good friends from Kansas, where I grew up, that just implemented the first universal basic income in the world. And so just about every Taiwanese citizen is receiving around $1,000 equivalent in purchasing power there every month without condition. And it's helping them start a family. It's helping them go back to school. And we got there because we were willing to make that policy more universal, 
because we were able to talk to the conservatives. We were willing to talk to the people who disagreed with us. You'd be surprised how many different types of people support psychedelic policy, even if they've never been in the same room as a psychedelic. You'd be surprised how many harm reduction groups want to get behind something like that local organizing because they're not seeing much progress in trying to convince the public to decriminalize drugs more broadly. So, you know, scope your mission in a way that brings in more than just uh, a core group of people like you. You're going to have to bring in people who think a little differently, and that's okay. And that advice applies to expanding a target audience too, I guess, with a podcast, you know, is trying to be more universal. It's something I've taken to heart is to try to invite people with different perspectives than me and also people that look different and sound different and talk about different things so as to expand the beyond the echo chamber, if you will. Now, yeah, I'd be curious to hear about the compatibility or potential compatibility of a for-profit legal psychedelic industry but decriminalization and a lot of what you're doing. I've talked to a lot of people who outwardly profess that we need all three. We need to have a religious use model. We need to have a medicalized clinical for-profit model, and we need the decrim model. But also in practicality, what you see is some of those models directly butt heads with each other. And obviously the idea of decrim, of anybody can grow mushrooms, anybody can have these in their community, that potentially undercuts the profits that a lot of the more capitalist people who are trying to, you know, usher in a new paradigm of psychedelic medicine, that's only this clinical route. So I'd just be curious to hear about, are these two models compatible, decrim and for-profit psychedelic medicine? Why or why not? Sure. So at least from my perspective, and then again, we have very different perspectives within our coalition to I feel like we need a space where entrepreneurs compete, where entrepreneurs are scaling up these services, where they're uh, meeting the specific and direct needs of someone who wants a plant medicine experience. And that takes a lot of different uh, free spirits and, and thinking. We need people who are innovating in the field of mycology, not just to uh, understand psilocybin better, but to understand mycelium as a better foundation for our buildings as better bricks, as a, a material that might soon rival hemp in its usefulness. Uh, we need a legion of people who are not just therapists and not just social workers who are already overwhelmed uh, with their cases, with their wait lists. But we also need almost an analog force of people who are just counselors, who are empathetic listeners, who can help and give people advice so that they can have a quality plant medicine experience in their own home or with their friends and family. And for us, we're not waiting around uh, for the law to catch up. We're building the world we want to see right now. And our facilitator network has actually uh, trips at for far more people than the phase three trials of MAPS, uh, far more than the phase two trials of Compass Pathways, and we're very proud of that, that we actually know a lot more about how psychedelics are used in the real world uh, than these companies that are working through the FDA process to get what's called exclusive authorization, which would give them almost 10 years of a monopoly over the sale of those services with prices estimated to be between 15 and $25,000. You thought Oregon 
was bad. And so for us, uh, the more that people are educated, the more that people have access to these plant medicines, the better. I think one thing that's really plagued the space in the past is when something is criminal, when it's underground, it attracts a certain type of personality. And it's not to dunk on those personalities, but just to say that some of them, like any subculture, are pretty weird. And in sometimes, in some cases, they're actually quite exploitative too. Uh, you know, there's been horror stories of, uh, you know, people in MAPS network who would actually throw up in people's mouths uh, during five Mio DMT ceremonies. There's a lot of weird people a lot of exploitative people out there, but when there's sunshine, when there's a legal access point, when there's accountability, people have a lot of different choices with whom they want to have their plant medicine experience with. And that accountability will, you know, erode those abuses. There's still abuses in, in legal therapy. There's abuses in every institution in America. And yet the more transparency, the more a democratic legitimacy that a system has, the less of that we see. And for us, uh, I think that the religious model is cool. I don't think it should be the only way for people to access plant medicine. Uh, Michael Pollan, who mentions the Grateful Dead one time and how to change your mind in a footnote, uh, he gave a presentation at Harvard that's about to make him give him another professorship he didn't even mention decrim at all. He didn't mention anything that's contemporaneous in Massachusetts reform, but he pushed kind of these talking points for his friends at Atai Sciences, Compass Pathways, that it should be medicalized, that we should wait for the FDA. And then he said, oh, and we should also have religious use. And so I think this religious use argument has kind of been co-opted by some of those actors to say, yeah, we're going to make it horribly inaccessible. Uh, only for the ultra wealthy in this country, not even upper middle class people. But if you want to go to the Zydor church, which is really just a front to sell you mushrooms, or uh, you want to pretend to be part of a religion in Florida, then you can to get access. I think that there's bona fide religions. I think that there's ample room for us to have spiritual discovery with psychedelics. I do not think the religious use it should be the priority. I think that we should aim for accessibility across the board and religious use will come from that. Yes. I'm just learning myself how all of this works, having interacted with a number of these characters and having grown up in the church myself, I know there's a wide array of religious and spiritual offerings, you know, be they psychedelic or not, as far as their quality and, and what, what they're actually doing in people's lives. So it's kind of still the Wild West in a lot of ways. Yes, there's some policy here and there, but one thing that's exploded is the underground market. And that's sort of the, the track that I've taken is kind of analyzing and looking at the macro narratives around this, because when mushrooms specifically became super popular a few years ago and all this pr primetime coverage got devoted to them, of course, people wanted them. Where were they going to get them? And, you know, the FDA approval process is years. It's glacially paced. And meanwhile, you have people saying, oh, I can grow this. I can buy spores, right? Or I can learn how to forage in my neighborhood. So it's kicked off this 
huge interest. And th there was no way to meet the demand legally. So it's created this legacy market. And now you have people essentially operating with impunity. You know, you can buy mushroom chocolates and brick and mortar stores everywhere from New York to Los Angeles to Portland, Vancouver, etc. The online trade is huge. So I'm very curious where we're going from here. And we've got front row tickets to the show. So when I think of base daters, I think of mainly policy and advocacy, just probably how we met and the initial conversations we had. Now you've got facilitators, you've got a number of other offerings, you have community evenings. I Skyped in one time when you were having a nice in-person gathering and people were enjoying each other's company and community. Can you kind of outline the offerings and services that exist under the Bay Staters umbrella as it stands? Yes, absolutely. And just a real quick note, we coined the term uh, Wild West Effect, which is where you set the barrier to entry so high that you end up getting headlines telling everyone psychedelics are legal, which can cause a cultural backlash among some, just, you know, obscene excitement among others. And that's what builds that, that underground marketplace, which isn't all bad, but where we want it to be is we want to set regulation at a reasonable level where people will pay a slight price premium to know that they're getting a quality product, to know that they're getting a quality facilitator that knows what they're talking about. That doesn't mean it needs to be sky high regulation, which is what we're ultimately trying to oppose. And so to bring it back to our services, we're modeling with our facilitator network exactly how we believe the law should be structured in Massachusetts. And in fact, a Republican and former police officer filed a bill that would do just this. We do a background check. We ask references about this person and see if they're in it for the right reasons. We force them to complete a training on harm reduction and health related to psychedelics. We explicitly tell them that part of our mission is to tell some people that psychedelics might not be a good option for them. Uh, we encourage them to really build a real friendship, an authentic friendship with the person that they're on a facilitator call with. We're not therapists, even though some of our facilitators are therapists outside of that work. We're not people in a lab coat, you know, studying them. We're just genuine people for whom psilocybin and other plant medicines has been helpful that are there to answer questions. And then, you know, we think outside the box. Uh, if Boston Globe chooses to cover it, I just tripped sat for... Uh, a new friend at a nature reserve here in Massachusetts. Uh, we have experiences outside. We really meet the person's needs where they feel most comfortable energetically having an experience and have a process uh, by which we help people not just look at traumas of the past, that's sometimes best done with a therapist, but really set goals for themselves in the future and and reconnect with what makes them grateful for life and and the energies and people that they've met along the way who they want to continue to meet in the future. The second big service is we've taught thousands of people how to grow mushrooms at this point. And a lot of this comes down to the fact that psilocybin spores are not illegal. Uh, they are, I guess, in California, Idaho, and Georgia. They're not in Massachusetts. We have taught genuine classes, and I mean this, Dennis, on microscopy. Uh, some of the artists in our network actually regularly look at organisms under a microscope for art projects. And I think microscopy 
might be one of those serendipitous areas where we discover the next big thing, which is why it's so exciting to see people take their healing into their own hands so we can learn. That's, that's science. That's citizen science at work. And we've had a lot of people growing lion's mane, growing oysters, uh, growing lots of different kinds of mushrooms. And, you know, I get... I get texts from little old ladies uh, asking about their grow kits. They ask, is this mold? Is this mold? I'm like, no, that's mycelium. You're growing a brain in a bag. Congratulations. And it's just been a lot of fun learning by doing and, and teaching people how to grow because we're one big discovery away from changing everything, truly. Yeah, and I, I'm glad that there's someone out there taking for microscopy use only to heart. So thank you for that. Very important caveat there. Now, I'm curious about this idea of population level decisions, where if you're in a position of power, you're the governor or president or so on and so forth, it's tough to make population level decisions with policy, right? And there's that adage, you can't keep all the people happy all the time. I feel like a lot of times, and I'm guilty of this, it's really easy for us to be critical of government. It's, you know, be critical of policy. But it's really hard to actually suggest a meaningful change that's actually legitimate and pragmatic, right? A lot of us operate in our own little echo chambers. Some of those are magical thinking driven echo chambers about the way things should work. But when you start to think about I'm the governor of California or I'm the governor of, of Massachusetts, how do I factor in all of this input I'm getting about psychedelic policy and how we need to change? Well, how do I make a sensible decision for a population with you know tens of millions of people in some case? Uh, when you're approaching the governor or if you were in that position, what are some of these uh, what qualities you have to bear in mind that uh, maybe go beyond our wishful thinking about how psychedelics should be rolled out into the world? What are some of the realities and practicalities people have to consider with these population level decisions about psychedelic policy change? Sure. So I'll boil it down into three points that I think are going to be useful. The first is that politicians in many ways are just like us. They don't know much about the world. Some of them think they do. But in the Massachusetts legislature, for example, they have nearly 7,000 bills. And as someone who's worked in legislative policy, who you know, has dedicated my life to legislative policy, it's still difficult to read and understand what these bills actually do. And a lot of that is on purpose because interest groups and specifically trial lawyers associations want laws to be complicated because then it creates demand for more lawyers to, you know, that you have to pay to consult to open up your cannabis business or your psychedelics business. And so lawmakers they're all too human. They like people who kiss their butts. They like people who flatter them. Uh, lobbying is really the art of selling your high school friendship or the fact that your kid is on the same football team. A lot of politics is extremely personal like that because it's difficult for lawmakers to even understand what's going on because they're human, just like us. On the other hand, uh, they're also a little more lizardly than we are sometimes as well, because a lot of them who are able to ascend the echelons of power to, you know, compete for the presidency, to compete for a governorship, a lot of them come from a strata of the United States that is incredibly well off and frankly out of touch with 
the average American. Um, this is extremely common in Massachusetts as well. That's not to say that those individuals are, are bad or that they don't also bring good ideas to the world. They're often great leaders. That is to say that unless there is a concerted effort to make sure that working class people's interests are represented in our democracy, unless people stand up and say what they want and organize around common principles, then the people in their networks are going to be those who they went to law school with. They're going to be those who um, are paid to kiss their butts. And so that's why it's super important that, you know, you not be nihilistic about the political system because when you speak up with your lawmaker, when you share your story, when you speak from the heart, you cut through a lot of that BS. You're able to, you know, talk about your brother's experience with, uh, with opiate addiction, as I have. You're able to talk about how you're concerned about your son's neurological illness, like other advocates have. You're able to kind of cut through this because they're all too human in the fact that even the most wealthy and out-of-touch people still suffer from depression. Uh, they still suffer from neurological diseases. Their families still suffer from Alzheimer's and dementia. They're still human. And you can you can break through and and make a good case that this is something they should prioritize. And often at the end of the day, um, when politicians, particularly when they're near retirement or they don't see uh, a lot of upward movement, the person above them isn't going to retire anytime soon. A lot of a lot of people go into local politics, especially they really are bleeding hearts for their communities. They really actually do care and they do want to make a change. They just also have to prioritize certain policies that mean the most to them. Uh, maybe they want uh, laws that reform sexual assault statutes. And so they feel like supporting your psilocybin bill, if it's ahead of the culture, isn't for them because they're laser focused on working with their colleagues and trading votes to get that done. And so it's not fair to view politicians as completely nihilist. Some of them are. But a lot of them really do care. They just have a lot of pressure and it's a lot of pressure being under the public eye, even just as an organizer uh, in the nonprofit space. You get you get so much hate that like you just don't like you don't even know the people who are who are saying these like terrible, terrible things. And so, it, you know, they're human just like us. And when they're not human, it's still best to treat them like they are, because at some level they they're just like us. The second point I would just say is don't wait around for laws to change. Uh, build the world you want to see. Just do it strategically in a way that doesn't put you on law enforcement's radar. Frankly, law enforcement, 99% of them don't want to arrest people for mushrooms. Most law enforcement officers don't want to enforce the war on drugs at all. The few that do, they're not going to go out of their way to find you unless you're trying to become the Pablo Escobar of mushrooms, right? Or you're like selling other things like fentanyl. Often the people who get busted selling uh, mushrooms are also selling something like fentanyl. Um, or you've ruffled too many feathers in some way. You've gotten on someone's radar who doesn't like you. That's why we need to understand that law is... A reflection of culture and culture is really about power when you build community when you have convinced people around the dinner table that psilocybin is useful 
and you're not taking advantage of people, you're truly helping people, I don't think you have much to be worried about. And that also means, you know, being humble in what you're trying to achieve. A lot of churches are given bad advice in the psychedelic space that if the DEA sends them a questionnaire, fill it out and file yourself with the DEA. Do not talk to the DEA. Do not talk to the federal government. Don't talk to the government more than you need to, because that's how they get you. You look up some tax paper or you put yourself on their radar. That's usually what gets people in trouble. Instead, just build a community by word of mouth, uh, host fun events, actually create value uh, for your congregation, for your for your clients, and you will, you know, carve out a reasonable entrepreneurial space for yourself if you're creative and you meet those needs. You don't need to to be megalomaniacs about it. And maybe that'll bring me to kind of my last point, which is I'm really worried that if the headline is Joe Biden legalizes psychedelics because the FDA gives one corporation a 10-year monopoly on the sale of MDMA services, I am very worried about the cultural pushback we will get from that uh, because change happens from the bottom up. Truly, truly, truly. Um, one of the reasons why MDMA was banned in the first place was because a very idealistic young man wrote a letter to Nancy Reagan's drug task force telling them that there were practitioners using MDMA. The federal government is the least responsive form of government. The federal government is the most reactionary form of government. Work local, work in your community, and build real friendships of trust because no matter what the law says, people are still going to be seeking out this plant medicine. And these black swan events, I'd love to chat more about those. I don't, I don't think that there exists the same media environment that did uh, in the 1960s, where we only had a few television stations. I truly feel that, you know, we've reached a point where a critical mass of people have been educated and now it's just about getting it right. Let's talk about the black swan events. And I wanted to make a remark that the politicians, especially at the federal level or higher levels of power, are out of touch with the common people. I think the inverse is true as well, that a lot of common people are out of touch with how politics works, right? And myself included, I'm fairly educated and have a BA. And if you sat me down and gave me a US political system test, I'd bomb it. You know, I'd probably get a maybe a D minus on it. So that's saying something just at large about the system that we have in place. Now, black swan events. On October 3rd or so, I published an article, as I often do, either through Mycopreneur or other platforms, saying essentially that the cultural momentum around mushrooms has grown so profound that it's going to take some disinformation for anybody who wants to derail it, right? And I had predicted that this would be the next logical step, that so many people are sharing about how beneficial plant medicines and mushrooms have been for them. Well, the logical step would be to saturate the media ecosystem with disinformation. Lo and behold, 10 days later or so, front page news everywhere is an FAA pilot trying to crash a plane on mushrooms. And it fit exactly within that structure. And then recently there was a video released in Chile and it was blasted all over Reddit and the Internet about women on mushrooms at the airport. High profile place with lots of cultural baggage attached to it. Woman high on mushrooms attacks people naked at the airport. There's other stories that have come out. So 
I guess that's what I'm referring to with the black swan event. Uh, where do you see this going in the future? Because yes, we do have so many people like yourself and myself, lots of community organizations, grassroots networks, Tracy T, Moms on Mushrooms, you know, <laughs> running very safe, very professional advocacy groups essentially for their neighborhood. And, and people aren't necessarily as dissuaded by these larger events that get blasted out on, on you know, major media outlets. Uh, where do you see these uh, horror stories essentially coming in over the, the, the next one that happens? How might people respond to it? Is it something we have to be concerned about? Yeah. So I think the past is prologue. So I want to take you back to a moment right before we decriminalize Somerville, Massachusetts, the first city here in our Commonwealth. Three days before the vote, I was pulling out my hair. I was so frustrated, Dennis, because the most high profile event, perhaps in the entire 21st century, happened in 2021 when Q Shaman, wearing Viking horns, stormed into the legislative chambers of the US Capitol building. He insisted that he only be given organic food. Uh, he credited psychedelics with all of his you know, political leanings happened, you know, just a few days before that vote. What also happened is a guy injected himself with spores. It made national news. And so worried as I was, I emailed our co-sponsors for the resolution. I said, listen, guys, I don't know if you've heard about this stuff, but, you know, I'm happy to answer it. There's a lot of weird people who do psychedelics. There's a lot of weird people who do all drugs. Freak out on all drugs. Alcohol, the most available drug there is. People shitting themselves, attacking, destroying, killing other people all the time on alcohol. I'm ready to answer this. And they said, oh, I didn't even hear about it. Of course they want to pass the resolution because they know people who have lost their lives to opioid use disorder and they want a new treatment available. Some other events have happened. Paul Pelosi, the husband of Nancy Pelosi, was attacked by a guy in Berkeley, California, who regularly does LSD. He was attacked with a hammer. It's on video. You can look it up. And yet we decriminalized Berkeley, California. I, I spoke to the city councilor there who I used to work for, Sophie Hahn. Uh, she's pretty conservative in how she sees the world. You know, she's a mom. She, she takes that to heart. She lives with a lot of suburban moms. That's her base of voters. She still voted yes. And it's because the evidence is there. The evidence is there and there's enough people who are speaking out about how this helps others. Will there be more high profile events? I, I don't think they ever went away. I think that people react negatively to all substances and more education is really key. Uh, there was a study of decriminalization in Denver, you know, the first city in 2018, there's been no increase in hospitalizations uh, due to psychedelic use. And so the more that we educate, the more we're going to succeed long term. I think the real key is during this kind of transition period toward legalization, that's where the jackals are. That's where the lawyers that want to charge you a bunch of money to set up your psychedelic church, where the lawyers who want to charge you a bunch of money to read the 25-page new approach ballot pack measure law here, that's where the jackals lie. And that's where they want people who are uninformed, like your Nana, to pay almost $3,000 for a microdose. And it's shameful. 
And the exact same industry trend is happening in cannabis, which I saw working for the joint committee on, it's so funny, it's called the joint committee on cannabis policy. Uh, we saw firsthand that dispensaries are actually shutting down uh, because they were able to make a profit off of that initial excitement that cannabis had been legalized. But after a while, the illicit, illicit market of people growing their own cannabis that's higher quality, has less mold, way more affordable, it's been winning out and it eats into those profits. And it's like that on steroids in Oregon, because from the offset, people can't even afford uh, psilocybin treatment. So I'm happy to get into that now that we've talked about the fun and cool stuff a bit, but I'm not too worried about the black swan events. I think they just take education and, um, you know, our society has always had an irresponsible culture when it comes to drug use. That's nothing new. And that's something that hopefully we can change. A hundred percent. And you nailed it earlier by saying once upon a time, there were only a limited number of outlets that we all got our news from. And that's changed, right? And when you can see in broad daylight, all of these community-based organizations working that have track records going back years and just ordinary people sharing their experiences, it becomes a lot, lot more difficult to derail that. Okay, I've got some fun ones for you where we can dive kind of deeper into maybe the less savory but essential aspects of mainstreaming of psychedelics. MAPS PBC has a community director position available. You've been referred for the position and you are now the community director. What kind of changes would you want to implement from the inside with their model and how they're working? Well, I think I'd, I think I would have somebody donate a little bit to Bay Staters. I mean, after all, we've done so much work and uh, have gotten a, only a couple conference invites this entire time. I think I think the power goes to the people. I think that all of that money that's being spent on organizations, not just MAPS, but others, I think that it'd be a lot better of an investment if it were given to community groups to scale up their work locally. And I'd point to um, the fact that within MAPS' own research reports, if FDA approves MDMA, uh, they say that even if insurance covers it, and keep in mind, insurance hasn't covered medical cannabis that's been around since 1993, if insurance covered it, 30 million Americans still lack health insurance, and most Americans cannot afford their health insurance deductible of almost six to $8,000. So honestly, I would... Uh, I probably wouldn't be too popular there because I'd suggest we we devolve a lot of our money back into community advocacy, which it claims to support. But, you know, when the rubber hits the road, uh, we haven't seen it. And I think that another another piece of this is you don't need that much money to change the world either. I mean, people think they do. You need a lot of dedicated people because two volunteers that believe in something will offer millions of dollars worth of labor. So like paying, as soon as you bring in a salary to something or someone's getting paid, it honestly just kind of changes you. It turns it into a job. You're like, oh, I'm getting paid $15 an hour to canvas or whatever. Then your goal is to get as many signatures as possible so you get that, that signing bonus. When you're getting a salary, you know, your incentive is to just kind of go along and get along in an organization so that you don't lose your job. Because it's paying your bills, it's helping support your kids. So I think that we've really mobilized 
tens of millions, billions of dollars worth of labor and human capital just by inspiring people to give a shit, like with Bay Staters. So we don't need their money either. Um, yeah. I also think a lot more work needs to be done on record clearing and just ending the whole war on drugs. I mean, there's still uh, tens of thousands of people in Massachusetts that still have cannabis records, keeping them from, uh, you know, finding employment and housing. It's absurd. It, decades ago, we started legalizing cannabis, but a lot of states still haven't made meaningful progress on that. I, I think there's a lot of uh, cognitive dissonance between what MAPS claims to stand for and what it actually does. And MAPS is not alone in that. I don't mean to single them out. I think that's true of a lot of nonprofit organizations across name your issue. Sure. Now, I want to briefly dive into something about universal basic income because you touched on this earlier, and I'm an unabashed proponent of it. I think it makes all the sense in the world. That's kind of an Andrew Yang guy, you know, informally. Like, I like a lot of his ideas, and that was one of them is about tech is here. Advanced tech we can't even wrap our minds around is here and is right around the corner. And yeah, I mean, for example, the illustration he used is that I want to say there's 40 million people who are involved with the trucking and shipping industry or some huge number of people. And it's, you know, the, the most employees in a dozen states are actually truckers. And 10 years from now, there's going to be technology that essentially takes them out of that position. This has always happened with technology, right? That new opportunities get created. But it doesn't seem that unreasonable to institute universal basic income. And I've also said that I think that would probably solve a lot more public health issues than legalizing drugs would just by giving people access to money. So can you speak a little bit about universal basic income in the context of where it might fit in in the next couple of years? And is that something we might see in the United States and not just Taiwan? Yeah. So, uh, Dennis, you're going to love this. So we almost got a universal basic income. Under Nixon, same guy who gave us the Controlled Substances Act, under something called FAP, the Family Assistance Plan. And it was two votes away from becoming law. And it ultimately didn't become law because in universal basic income trials across the country that were run by none other than Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, I'm not making this up. They ran the UBI pilot trials and a senator uh, from New York decided he wouldn't vote for the UBI because it was increasing divorce rates. It was increasing divorce rates because women were leaving abusive relationships that they did not want to be in because they had financial freedom. And to bring it back to this thesis about asking people to do big things for big causes, I, I, it almost makes me tear up to imagine the human capital that is lost in poverty and stress about bills. It is, it is a human tragedy that outnumbers the military budget, that outnumbers the entire federal budget, that there are people who have potential that is absolutely squandered by both lack of access to resources and, and the mental space to be creative and be who they were meant to be but also the mental health issues, the anxiety, the depression that keeps them from being everything they can be. And in that sense, I think that UBI gives the trapeze artists and all of us a net in which we can make entrepreneurial risks, in which we can try and we can fail and we can try and fail again. But in our trying, 
discover new technologies and ways of being with one another that unlock trillions of dollars in wealth, even just a UBI for kids. We had the child tax credit for a very short time. It was wildly popular across the United States. It it axed childhood poverty to historic lows. If we just had that, we would save almost a trillion dollars a year in back-end costs of crime, lack of productivity, uh, people getting mired in mental health issues. That alone, just for kids, just for kids, would be transformative for a country. And so, yeah, I think I think universal basic income is an idea uh, that is is long rooted in American history that animated Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, anti-poverty campaign. He believed that civil rights would not be actually attained until we had uh, wages that were dignified, work available to all, and something, a net that kept people from being in abject poverty. And in that sense, I'm really, really proud of our team in Taiwan uh, for being the first in the world, the first in the world to truly implement that universal policy. And that's what I have to say about that. Super epic. Yeah, actually, as bad as the pandemic was in so many ways, it definitely freed up a lot of time for a lot of people to pursue these kind of side hustles, as you will, the trapeze artists and us. And Micropreneur Podcast is 100% a product of that era where I thought, okay, I have a lot of time on my hands. I'm getting a little assistance here. Let me see what else I can do. And I know many people who launched projects during the pandemic, it forced us to be creative and we had the time. And that was not a luxury that many people had five years before that. And, and unfortunately, returning to the, the humdrum grind where many people have to take their bread job, especially with inflation and whatnot, you have to, you know, it's, it's tough to go all in on a project when you have to be working X amount of hours per week and on call and so on and so forth. So I think UBI, I've always been an unabashed proponent of it. And I realize other people are scared of it, you know? So I just wanted to hear your take on how it might actually fit in. Now, we'd love to hear about some of the nuts and bolts around what's going on with the policy shaping right now, because yes, you've got your approach and it's been quite effective, but apparently it's not the only approach. It's not the only approach. There are other people who have other motives and a lot of us are kind of lost in what's happening. You know, if we're not directly on the ground paying attention, we just see headlines, you know, you see, you're scrolling through the timeline, you see this, you see that. And I remember when Colorado was passing a lot of their ballot initiatives, I had people from both sides who wanted to come on the podcast and I ended up not really wanting to get involved because it's like, I can't <laughs> keep anything straight. I don't know who's on whose team or whatnot. So can you just outline some of the, the challenges that you're currently up against and why base staters and your approach will ultimately prevail? Yeah. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. And so this goes back to the fact we got volunteers to stand outside on doorsteps. We got artists to make personalized art for lawmakers, telling them how shrooms changed their life. And we got our bills filed. And so we have two pieces of legislation that are currently before the lawmakers of Massachusetts. The first would allow people to grow and share almost 200 grams of psilocybin mushrooms many doses of mescaline, many doses of DMT, and many doses of Ibogaine. And at the point where we have passed that law, the appetite for prosecuting or testing, if law enforcement even know how to do that, will be absolutely bar none zero. 
at the ground. And so passing that legislation out of Judiciary Committee, where it currently lies, will be a nationwide win for educating people about the power of these plant medicines and the best and safest ways to use them. The second law would create a very simple licensing system for people who want to hold space for others. And it sets it at a level where people will actually pay the fee, where people will actually want to become an above the board facilitator, because if you set it too high, it creates the Wild West. There's still interest. People still see the headlines that you just mentioned. They think it's legal, but in practice, it's too expensive to operate. That's what we're trying to prevent. Now, I was on my way to a music festival in Marshfield, Massachusetts, uh, to do a little mushrooms with my girlfriend and enjoy some of my favorite concerts. And suddenly I got an email alert that new approach pack, uh, which created the system that we have in Oregon, which created a cannabis system in Massachusetts where you could take the entire black wealth of Boston and you still couldn't open up a single cannabis dispensary even though African-American people were criminalized at seven times the rate of their peers, that pack that has messed up so many systems and held back progress announced that it was going to do a ballot measure and that that ballot measure may or may not include cultivation protections or personal use protections at all. And so I was like, huh, well, I guess I'm still going to go to the music festival and have a great time the best time I can. And what that law would do, it's 25 pages. It is so boring. It is legalese. Our bills are one page. I like to brag about that. It's one page. A normal person can actually read and understand our legislation quite well. That 25-page bill would do a few things. The first is it would create an unelected commission of five unelected people to write laws for 7 million people. As has happened in Colorado and Oregon, they're going to be political appointees that New Approach is able to use donations and those personal relationships that are so important in politics to get their people appointed, just like it did with the Cannabis Control Commission here, just like it did with the Control Commission for Psilocybin in Oregon. Mason Marks, a professor at Harvard's Petrie Flom Center for Bioethics, uh, did a great article about how uh, New Approach is lobbying, but they're not registered to lobby in Colorado by taking the governor and Senate majority leader out to lunches and dinners. Uh, it's illegal because you have to be registered as a lobbyist if you're doing lobbyist activity. It was published in the Denver Post print, but by some nature of the governor being really powerful and the Senate majority leader being the second most powerful, it hasn't reached online publication for some reason. And we can expect really similar things to happen if there's an unelected control body here in Massachusetts. The second thing the law does is it makes it illegal for you to advertise services and harm reduction. That means that a lot of legally operating churches uh, that have long used these plant medicines ancestrally would have to pay their tens of thousands of dollars per month for insurance, for licensing, for a good lawyer, for a physical infrastructure, to actually administer an experience. And it would also prevent us from having harm reduction booths and other innovations in the entertainment space to keep people safe on psychedelics because you wouldn't be able to advertise that service in the future. 
it would directly criminalize Bay Staters in that regard too. And one other thing it does is it would require our uh, health insurance system, our Medicaid system to cover the costs. And this is kind of a throwaway thing they put in there last second. They're like, we'll answer affordability by just saying the government will pay for it. We face really critical budget shortages in Massachusetts, New York, even the wealthiest states in the country right now. Um, you know, New York's cutting its, its city budget on sanitation. Massachusetts is having to deal with a huge influx of families that it has to house before the winter months. We don't have the money to, to pay these creepo lawyers extra money just so they can make this space inaccessible. And so even if Medicaid did cover it, it would still be illegal under federal law for it to cover it. So that doesn't make sense. It caused some type of lawsuit or legal jeopardy there. Even if it did cover it, it still wouldn't be accessible because of insurance deductibles, which are still high, even if you're on Medicaid and copays that are too expensive for a lot of people, even on Medicaid. So this law is atrocious. It's it's just poorly written. It's not strategically written. I'd give it maybe a 50-50 shot of even being passed by confused voters next November if it makes the ballot. Um, it would force cities to rewrite their zoning laws. Cities don't want to do that. We're a very localist community in Massachusetts. Cities do not like to be told what to do by the state government. This would force them to rezone to allow for these expensive facilitation centers. And at the end of the day, uh, they didn't ask for our input at all. Uh, they donated $35,000 to Bay Staters. I get a call from their lobbyist all the time screaming at me uh, and, and calling me a bad person, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's like he went from charm offensive from calling us friends all the time, like love bombing. to like now he's just like he thinks like being really angry at me. They made an unconditional donation to thank us for making a, any ballot question possible because they wouldn't have put forward a ballot question if it hadn't been for our work setting the stage for it. So they offered to give us 35K. I was like, yeah, put that in our account. We haven't spent a dime of it because we basically, we have no paid staff. I'm not paid, nobody's paid. And we don't have that high of operation costs because we're an all volunteer organization. So we're going to put that money to good use someday on, on a community center or something great for people in need. Um, but they thought they could buy us off just like they did in Colorado, just like they did in Oregon by platforming people at fancy conferences. I don't want to go to your fancy conferences. I want to smoke weed with my girlfriend on a Thursday night. And I want to connect with some really, really cool people for whom plant medicine has been instrumental in their lives. And uh, they're running into some trouble. They they may or may not have gathered the necessary signatures. They had to regather uh, 75,000 in a week, which they claim to have done. We'll see because uh, they had left a union. They they put a union's logo on the paper, like I guess representing that the union supported it. So that got most of those signature forms thrown out. Uh, we have uh, footage, legally obtained footage of their canvassers lying to voters and saying that they're volunteers, saying that it's only to medicalize psilocybin, even though we force them to include cultivation by raising a ruckus as we do. Um, there's a lot of, there's countless misrepresentations in that, in that video. Uh, 
We also have lots of independent reports of canvassers walking up to people and saying, will you sign this? I'll lose my job if I don't gather 50 by the end of my shift. So the pitch isn't even anything related to the ballot measure. The second pitch we've heard is this will expand mental health options. Third pitch we've heard, this will help veterans. That's all they say. Uh, fourth pitch, you know, this will legalize plant medicine. We're not afraid of the word psychedelic. When we table, when we do that advocacy, we want to tell you exactly the psilocybin we used and how it's helped us, uh, which uh, a former canvasser from their team, a lot of the young people getting paid, you know, minimum wage here equivalent to, to canvas, they're actually coming back to volunteer for us because they're learning about this. And they're like, huh, I, I was just, I, this just seemed like a job that was going to make the world slightly better. And that's not something that's common for jobs anymore. So I think they have a real credibility crisis. And then, you know, the people they were kind of platforming who, you know, could get away with saying, well, it's the only way forward. You know, we got to support the ballot measure. We can't just say no. Um, now we're holding their feet to the fire because we can actually substitute the ballot question and change the text that's put before voters. And so we're going to fight to do that. And even if we don't do that, we're not going to stop educating about affordability and we'll have an opportunity to change uh, the ballot question again if it passes next November through the legislature. And and if that doesn't work, we still have the people. I mean, people will see the headline legalization, legalization. In a sense, fiduciarily, if we were an organization based on getting as much revenue in as possible, we would just love the headline legalization because more people would find our group on the Google, they would donate for a facilitation call so they can learn about psychedelics. They would donate at our events. They'd be like, it's legal now, I can do it. Fiduciarily, it would actually benefit the revenue of our organization for just whatever to pass. But that's not why I busted my ass for three years in the freezing cold to educate people because I don't think psilocybin should cost $3,000 and neither do the people of Massachusetts. Yeah, and uh, new approach pack. If you're listening, I could definitely use an unconditional thirty-five thousand dollar <laughs> grant myself. I might be a little bit of a softer target than James here. That's the the you know the the where the rubber meets the road is that mushrooms are all over the place. It's not just in Massachusetts, not just in California. They're over in Europe, Australia. They're in Africa. They're in Mexico. All over the place. And I think a lot of people trying to drive this conversation from a perspective of profit motive don't really understand that. that and I think that's what Compass Pathways and a tie, so on and so forth, have really run into is they were very excited about the potential that there's cultural interest in them. And then they realized, oh, people in whatever state can buy for a, a hundredth of the price we're charging. They can buy it from their neighbor or for free. And like quite a few people, myself included, like we don't really want a salary. You know, I often like to say like, I like to work for the mushrooms. You know, you do things not because you're getting a salary or whatever. It's, it's really an honor. It's awesome to have this opportunity to share knowledge and education. And most people who have had that kind of personal experience don't come in with guns blazing, thinking about how they're going to milk this thing for the most amount of money, right? I feel like most people have the experience like, yeah, there's a, a bit of a balancing act where you need to find a way to be sustainable. But 
Typically, for most mushroom people, profit is never the goal. It's never like, how am I going to make the, it's like, how can I have a really cool life with a great community, great friends and feel happy? And like, how, how do I put a price on those things? And that's something I love about the grassroots or mycelial roots Myco community essentially is like doing potlucks and hanging out and having, you know, going camping. And yes, the conferences are pretty stylish and fancy. I got to say, I've been on the conference circuit and it's quite interesting, you know, but there's always another one. That's what I noticed too. Like you can literally go to like 10 of them and they're like, oh, you're not going to the next one in New York City? Oh, you're not going to the next one in Miami? It's like, wait a minute. Like I already went to 10 of them this year. Am I, am I not like in the club now? It's this sort of like, and that's also where a lot of the money goes, I think, when you look at like companies that have been funded and they're like, how come this company's losing money? It's like, well, they've been at South by Southwest, Davos, they're out in Vegas again doing something. We need more money. It's Giving Tuesday. Come on, help, help us out here. So, I, I, yeah, I like to have a sense of humor about it. Well, let's like wrap this up as much as I'd like to talk for another hour, but we'll just do a part three sometime. But what's the call to action here for people who are kind of on the fence about if they want to get involved with an organization like Bay Staters, or maybe they want to start one in their own community? I don't don't think there's ever been as many grassroots, small, independent orgs around psychedelics as there are today. There's new platforms, companies, advocacy measures launching every day. What's the call to action uh, for people who are trying to get involved and trying to make something happen on the local level? So I would like to personally invite all of you to join one of our community action hours. It's how all this work started humbly with Bay Staters, which is simply an online call the pandemic flattened the world and made it possible for us to connect with people across the United States. Join one of those calls, share your story of hope and healing, learn our approach to politics and how we're making it a fun and meaningful approach to politics, and then take action with us to make the world better. Because if you're someone like me, we don't have a lot of money. Well, I do have a lot of money. I just keep it in cigarettes and beanie babies. So it's not easy to you know, transfer that to buy for... Uh, fancy airline tickets and fly to all these conferences, you can meet amazing people in your very own community who have benefited from psilocybin. You can get out and forage. You can get out and have a lot of fun with the people right there at home. And in so doing, you're building solidarity. You're building a mycelium that will resist any bad law that they write about psychedelics and will ultimately educate people so they can heal. And that's our call to action is grow, learn, and share because no matter what they do, we're still going to win. Amen. James Davis of Bay Staters, thanks for joining us again on Mycopreneur. And we'll have to do this again sometime. And thanks for all the incredible work that you've been doing and very inspired by your approach. And, and I'm also really inspired by how professional you are, right? I think that that's what I want to see is more people in our position, kind of young people who have some experience, who actually do the due diligence to learn about how these processes and systems work at the macro political level, and then take action accordingly. So thank you for the inspiration that you've been there for all of us. Of course. Thank you, Dennis. Excited to come back sometime. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, mycopreneur at gmail.com. 
or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Micopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Micopreneur Podcast.